0: Please turn with me as we consider our our text once again in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. This is actually the second part of the sermon that was begun last Lord's Day. These are the words of Gabriel, the angel, uh, who came in response to Daniel's <clears throat> prayer, confessing his sin to the Lord, and God sent Gabriel to give to Daniel, this is the answer to his prayer. He had prayed, confessing his sin, the rebellion of Israel against the Lord, uh, the iniquity that had led to their desolation and captivity. That's what Daniel prayed for. Now, the Lord sends through Gabriel the answer to their sin, to their rebellion, the Messiah who was to come. And so, Daniel 9 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Before Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, many of the faithful were anticipating and expecting that at that very time in history, the Messiah was about to come. Not in a general sense was about to come, but very specifically in a more immediate sense that he was about to come. In fact, at the time of John's ministry, people were asking John if he was the Messiah. In Luke 3.15, we read, And as the people were in expectation, of what? Of the coming of the Messiah. And all men mused in their hearts of John whether he were the Christ, that is, the Messiah, or not. Now, there may have been different reasons for this expectation of Christ's coming at that particular time, whether uh, it was the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ that was hidden in the hearts of of certain of the faithful, or whether uh, it was the miraculous events that occurred at the birth of Jesus Christ, Remember the angels open up, the shepherds learning uh, from those, that angelic host that Christ was born, the coming of the wise men. So there may have been miraculous events that, that those at that time cherished in their hearts and spread with others that the Messiah was here. It may have been due uh, to the ministry of John the Baptist, that anticipation and expectation of of the coming of the Messiah was was aroused uh, amongst the people. Uh, For he was teaching that the time is at hand, he said, uh, for the kingdom of God to come. Meaning that if the kingdom, kingdom of God is coming, the time is at hand, that the king is therefore coming. But let us not forget another reason, another possible reason, that the faithful had for expecting the Messiah to come at that particular time. And it was Old Testament prophecies that hundreds of years earlier had also spoken of the coming of the Messiah and had even given the time and date of his coming, as we see here In Daniel 9.24, where the angel Gabriel prophesies that 70 weeks of years, 490 years, were determined by God in order to accomplish six events or purposes of God at the coming of the Messiah. 70 weeks, 490 years from the beginning of a particular event, which we'll, God willing, consider next Lord's Day. No wonder why there was so much excitement about John's ministry, why so many huge crowds and multitudes of people went out to hear him preach and were baptized by him. This expectation of Christ's coming, Messiah's coming, No wonder why questions were being asked of of John, whether he was the Messiah, because of this expectation. They had every reason at that time to be excited. They had every reason to expect their king was coming at that time, based upon the timeline given to us, here in Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks, 490 years. But may we as well be excited. Not only those who were living at that time, may we also be excited as we read about the 70 weeks that were prophesied. And then we have now the full revelation to understand Jesus Christ came exactly in that time period that was prophesied by Gabriel, the angel. As we consider the fulfillment of this, it it again should excite us and encourages because it basically declares that our God is sovereign. All things are appointed by him. He holds all events in his hand. They are the working out. History is the working out of his plan. And so this should encourage us. Our God, the one we serve, the one who has rescued and saved us, is the God who has decreed and who controls all history. That should excite us. That we're not left to the wicked plans of corrupt leaders. That we are not uh, those uh, who uh, are at their disposal. Our God rules. Our king rules. And he has decreed all things that are to come to pass. Well, we continue this Lord's Day with our consideration of the six events or, or purposes of God, which would be accomplished uh, when the Messiah would appear at His first coming. And uh, Daniel nine twenty four, the first three we considered last Lord's Day, which those three are the following: to finish the transgression. To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, Jesus accomplished all of those in his first coming, or they were accomplished at his first coming. The last three that were to be accomplished at his coming within the 70 weeks, To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So let us work our way through each of these as well. And seek to understand what they mean and when were they fulfilled and realized. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Let me, just as more by way of review, but just as the first three events or purposes were realized within the 70 weeks or 490 years at Christ's first coming, so likewise are the last three events or purposes. The biblical, uh, the historical Protestant position interprets the last three events or purposes to be realized in the 70th week at the first coming of the Lord Jesus, just like the first three events or purposes. The life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ are that to which all of history in the past points forward to or in history after those events points back to. And not only history generally, but <coughs> Israel's history. There's nothing more important in his, Israel's history than the death of, The burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. For he came as the king. Certainly the king of all nations, but the king of Israel. He came to reign over his people. He came to grant salvation to to accomplish redemption and salvation. Israel cannot be saved at any time in the future unless Jesus Christ accomplished redemption in his first coming in those 70 weeks and in particular in that 70th week which is connected, that last week is connected by way of consecutive years to the previous uh, 69 weeks or 483 years. And so let us now consider what the fourth event or purpose, namely to bring in everlasting righteousness means and when it was fulfilled. To bring in everlasting righteousness, or perhaps even more literally, to cause to come in everlasting righteousness. To cause it to come in. Righteousness here refers to being right with God, according not to our own standards of being right to God with God but according to his own holy standards being right with God his perfect standard of his righteousness being right with God you see we have a problem as all human beings do who are in Adam who have come from Adam uh, except Jesus Christ himself we have a problem that problem is our so-called righteousness which we trust in which we think uh, uh, if we certainly do if we do certain things um, that uh, we're we're safe Uh, we're going to make it in Uh, no problem the problem is that in Isaiah 64 verse 6 God through the prophet Isaiah says but we are all as an unclean thing, all of us. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That is, filthy rags before God. And we all do fade as a leaf as a result of our unrighteousness. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away taken us away from God. That's our condition. Even the best that we think that we can offer to God is like filthy rags compared to his righteousness. And he does not judge us, as I said, according to our standard of righteousness, but according to his own standard, which is absolutely perfect. And so our salvation, our eternal salvation depends upon two necessities. First of all, the removal of the guilt and condemnation of all sin. That guilt and condemnation of sin must be removed. And that was accomplished in Jesus Christ in his first coming. As we... Considered the last Lord's day, Jesus came to make an end of sin. It was accomplished. But not only must we have all guilt and condemnation of sin removed, but we must also have perfect righteousness. Because when sin is removed, that doesn't make us perfectly righteous. We just go back to basically a clean slate, but there's no righteousness in that ledger. We can't put our righteousness in that ledger and that accounting before God, because our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so, in the Death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he not only removed all the guilt and condemnation of sin, but he also brought in everlasting righteousness because he lived a perfectly holy life wherein Adam failed to do so and his sin was was passed on was credited to our account and passed on called original sin from generation to generation thereafter except for the Lord Jesus Christ who was not conceived by ordinary generation. And so that righteousness that Jesus in fulfilling perfectly all of God's commandments he never sinned Everything he did was in keeping with that absolutely holy, perfect standard of righteousness that God has established. That is true of God Himself. Jesus Christ came, as He told John the Baptist, to fulfill all righteousness. He came to fulfill all righteousness. And so he obtained that, that perfect eternal righteousness in his obedience to the law of God from the time of conception to the time of his death, obviously subsequent to his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, he lived a perfect and holy life. And the good news is that in Christ and in the death and in the first coming of Christ, not only is our guilt and condemnation of sin removed, but there is also that righteousness of Jesus Christ that He earned, that He secured. For his elect, for everyone who trusts in him, who believes in him, that righteousness is credited to our account so that not not only are all the debts that we owe to God removed, but there is in that place, in that ledger, in that accounting before God, all the righteousness of Christ put to our account. And that's why then God can look upon that account and say, you're righteous. You're righteous in Jesus Christ. Not in yourself, but in Christ you are righteous through faith in him who is our righteousness. Only Jesus could bring in everlasting righteousness. In Isaiah 45, verses 22 through 24, hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus came, it was prophesied that he would be our righteousness. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. That's where we find, again, Paul quoting that and in Philippians chapter 2 and saying in Philippians 2, that's referring to Jesus Christ. Here it says it's God. Jesus Christ is God. Uh, that uh, is made very clear, I believe. So it's Jesus that is speaking here, obviously before his incarnation, when he says that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. And then it goes on to say, surely shall one say, in the Lord have I righteousness. In the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, have I righteousness, not in myself but in the Lord Isaiah 51.8 says speaking of God's righteousness my righteousness shall be forever not for a brief period of time not just uh, throughout earth's history my righteousness shall be forever it shall not, never come to an end Malachi 4.2, again, an Old Testament prophecy, speaks of the Lord Jesus and says, but unto you, and this is Jesus, this is the Lord speaking, but unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. The, the sun there is not S-O-N, but S-U-N, the sun. He will shine forth his righteousness. He will bring forth as in the as when the sun arises after darkness, he will be the one to bring in righteousness. Just as the sun shines its rays of light and heat, so the Lord Jesus will bring forth righteousness. In the New Testament, Second Corinthians 5 21. Says, for he, that is God the Father, hath made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, Jesus, this is an amazing transaction. Jesus takes all of our sin upon himself. It's all placed to his account. And he dies as a sacrifice and pays the debt. God judges him for our sin, for our guilt and our condemnation. So that's all placed on Jesus. But then Jesus places to, God places to our account through the righteousness of Christ, which he earned in keeping the law perfectly, he charges and accounts that righteousness to our account. So we give him our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Have you ever heard of a better gift in all of the world, in all of history? Can you imagine that gift? He takes all our sin and guilt, and condemnation. And he gives us his perfect, holy righteousness so that we are viewed before the judgment seat of God as righteous as Jesus is. Not in ourselves, but in him. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Jesus has made unto us Righteousness. This is not a righteousness that we have earned or or performed by our obedience, but a righteousness that was earned by the obedience of Jesus. That, I submit to you, is what is the meaning of that phrase, to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is a righteousness that is everlasting because... It's Christ's righteousness, which cannot increase. Christ's righteousness cannot decrease. Christ's righteousness cannot be paused. It cannot slow down. It cannot come to an end. It is everlasting righteousness. And that is, dear ones, the believer's standing. At all times before God the judge. And when we are accused because we will sin, when the accuser of the brethren comes, it is to our advocate, it is to our Jesus that we point the accuser. Yes. I am all that you say that I am, accuser. That's true. I am a sinner. I deserve God's wrath and condemnation. But there is one, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has died for me and who has credited to me his glorious righteousness that everlasting righteousness was brought about in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at his first coming. The futurist puts that everlasting righteousness of Jesus Christ, of which we've just spoken, in this nebulous parenthesis Not in the 70 weeks, not in the 70th week, but in this pause, in this gap, in this parenthesis. That which is most important to our salvation, to bring in everlasting righteousness according to that particular eschatological uh, scheme uh, is placed in a parenthesis. Dear ones, Christ's righteousness is not in our parenthesis as far as I'm concerned it is the height and the glory of Jesus Christ that was realized and fulfilled in the 70 weeks and particularly in the 70th week I submit that a view that would push that everlasting righteousness into the future whether to the millennium or to the New heaven and new earth is actually, even according to the scheme and and the the view of the futurists, pushing it if if it's in the millennium that this is realized, everlasting righteousness, or in the, the eternal state in the new heaven and new earth when this everlasting righteousness is brought in. Both of those are outside the 70th week. And yet this particular prophecy says that it's within the 70th week or 70 weeks that everlasting righteousness would be brought in. And so even according to uh, the, the calendar of the futurist, it's not within the 70 weeks. It's, it's subsequent to the 70 weeks. But here we see, and I submit to you, it's realized in the first coming of our Savior. The next... Uh, event or purpose ordained by the Lord to occur in the 70 weeks is to seal up the vision and prophecy what does it mean to seal up well it means to to hide something so that it doesn't any longer appear the same word seal is used earlier in the very same verse in Daniel 9, 24, when it says to make an end of sins, literally to seal up sins. And in that particular case, Jesus paid the full and complete debt of sin for his elect. All those sins that he paid for were therefore hidden and no longer appeared before God's throne of judgment. Not that we no longer sin, even as Christians, but that the guilt and the condemnation for those sins of God's elect are fully paid by Christ's sacrifice, and are therefore, the Scripture speaks in this language, that our sins are cast behind God. The judge, or our sins are cast into the sea, or our sins are removed from, uh, uh, from us as far as the east is from the west. In all of those examples, our sins don't appear anymore. They're sealed. Uh, they don't appear bef- uh, before uh, us as requiring judgment or before God's throne of judgment any longer. God disciplines us, God chastens us for our sins, but as to the guilt and condemnation of those sins they are fully paid for and removed by Jesus Christ an example that maybe to help further understand this idea of to seal up and when we read here in Daniel 924 to seal up the vision and prophecy, uh, Criminals, we might say, are sealed up in prison from the view of the public. Or we might say concerning valuables that we have at home, that they are sealed up in a safe from the view of visitors. It's also the idea... I think that's communicated when it is said that certain court documents are sealed. Uh, That means that no one can see them at that time. They're sealed. They're not available to the public to to be able to look at them, to read them, to go over them. They're sealed. And so when it says uh, that vision and prophecy are to be sealed up, what does that mean? Well, vision and prophecy, or literally vision and prophet, refer to the Old Testament prophecies brought by the prophets of old concerning the coming of the Messiah to accomplish the uh, events and the purposes stated in Daniel 9:24. You see, in the coming of Jesus Christ, all of the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning His life, death, burial, resurrection, miracles, His ministry—all uh, of those were revealed in the Old Testament. We can say, and I believe according to this verse, we can say all those prophecies were sealed up so that they no longer appear as unfulfilled prophecies as Jesus comes in the, his first coming. The prophecies like those that we have here in Daniel 9, 24, were fulfilled in the 70 weeks, the 490 years. They no longer need to be fulfilled. But according to the Holy Spirit, they are sealed. The prophecy of these events and purposes of God, if I might use another analogy, all of these prophecies of the Old Testament that spoke of Christ's life, ministry, miracles his death, uh, his burial his resurrection, his ascension all of these prophecies from the Old Testament were as it were <clears throat> uh, on the stage and behind the curtain was the fulfillment you couldn't see the fulfillment yet they were behind the curtain what was up in cent- uh, front and center were the prophecies when Jesus came, the prophecies went behind the curtain. They're hidden. And the reality, the fulfillment, takes front and center on the stage. And so the prophecy in that sense is sealed. It's hidden because it's been fully realized. It's uh, The prophecy is behind the curtain. The fulfillment is on the stage now. Or just like a another analogy just like a case that's settled by a court is no longer open but is sealed is closed is hidden so likewise the prophecies concerning christ once they are fulfilled were no longer open but were closed they were settled they were fulfilled So that, I submit to you, is the meaning of to seal up the vision and prophecy. When would the the vision and the prophecy then be sealed after the time of Daniel? Well, once again, according to the futurist interpretation, it's pushed back to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's the reason for this this 2,000-year gap thus far is because they believe that the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ have not yet been fully realized. And that's certainly true. There are prophecies yet to be fulfilled in the future that we find in the Old Testament scriptures. But what are the prophecies specifically in view in Daniel 9:24? Are they prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ? Or are they prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ? When Christ would come and pay the debt of sin and and bring in everlasting righteousness, they all pertain to the first coming of Christ. Those are the prophecies then that were sealed, that pertained to his first coming. Thus, contextually, I submit it is much more fitting that the vision and prophecy were accomplished at Christ's first coming, just like the previous four events and purposes were accomplished at Christ's first coming when Christ came and offered his life for our sin and to secure righteousness for us. And then finally, the last event. The last event or purpose that is decreed here by the Lord to occur within these 70 weeks. To anoint the most holy, to anoint the most holy. Well, since the first five purposed events were all realized at the first coming of Christ during the 70 weeks, is it not likely that this sixth one was also realized during that same period of time? Let's consider this uh, phrase, the most holy, literally, holy of holies, to anoint holy of holies. This phrase does not refer, I submit to you, to the rebuilding of a future temple of the Jews, which God will allegedly, according to the futurist interpretation, uh, which temple in the future God will allegedly anoint with his blessing, but rather refers to the anointing of God's most holy son, who in his earthly ministry declared himself to be the temple of God, in whom the glory of God tabernacled. The Lord Jesus said concerning himself, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In John 1, 14, 1 John one fourteen. John says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. Literally tabernacled among us. He became God's tabernacle among us. God's temple among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. We read in Acts 3:14. This is Peter preaching, "But ye denied speaking to the Jews, but ye denied the holy One, speaking of Jesus, calls him the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. know as if the temple... In the Old Testament, uh, something that is not animated, is not living, but was set apart uh, by God, if that temple was called by God most holy or holy of holies, and not only was the temple called that, not only was there a part within the temple called that, but also certain sacrifices were called holy of holies as well certain of the furniture was called Holy of Holies as well. So it wasn't simply or only the temple, but it was whatever was a part of that temple was called Holy of Holies. But my, my line of reasoning goes this way. If that which was a shadow of Jesus to come was called Holy of Holies, how much more Is Jesus holy of holies? The holy of holies. If the pattern that God gave in the Old Testament was called that, how much more now the reality and the substance is that? The holy of holies and all That's associated with it, whether it's the temple in the Old Testament, the altar within the temple, the sacrifices of the temple, the priesthood of the temple, the furniture of the temple, all of that has passed away because they were all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Holy of Holies. That's what Hebrews chapter 9 teaches us. Those were all patterns. Those have all passed away because they pointed to Jesus Christ. And so, dear ones, to return to a rebuilt temple would be to return to the old covenant after Jesus had instituted the new covenant. That is precisely what Paul warned against in many of his epistles, but particularly in the epistle to the Hebrews, warning those who were Jews about returning and who had professed Jesus Christ, returning back to the old covenant, going back to the to those ceremonies. Going back to all of those things of the Old Covenant, he warned them about doing so because to do so would be to forsake Jesus Christ who is our true temple. Was Jesus the Holy One anointed? Because it speaks here to anoint the Most Holy. Was he anointed? Well, certainly not with oil. Again, a type of figure in the Old Testament. But he was truly anointed according to the New Testament. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. When the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Jesus uh, says himself in Luke 4, Verse 18 and following, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he. Jesus closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him and he that is Jesus began to say unto them this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears he was anointed by the Holy Spirit in Acts 4 27 we read for of a truth Against thy holy notice again holy one uh, thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. And Acts ten thirty eight, speaking pre- Peter preaching to uh, Cornelius. We read how God Peter says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. This was, dear ones, the most important anointing of all anointings. Is the alleged anointing of a rebuilt temple more important than... The anointing of Jesus Christ? The Holy One of God? The Holy of Holies? See, the very words Messiah in the Hebrew and Christ in Greek mean anointed one. He was the anointed one. To anoint the Most Holy is to anoint Jesus Christ. This is who this prophecy is all about. In Daniel 9, 25, we read, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah, the Anointed One, the Prince. That's what, this is who this prophecy is about. It's not about a rebuilt temple. It's about Jesus. Jesus. And likewise, Jesus anointed his church. And Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 3.16 the temple of God. Jesus anointed his church, that temple, with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. So likewise, this event, which is again the sixth and final event or purpose that is mentioned in Daniel 9, 24. This was realized as well within the 70 weeks in the ministry of Christ at his first coming, not at his second coming, in the 70th week in particular, which we'll consider more fully as we work our way through these verses in Daniel 9. I want to close with a couple applications this Lord's Day. First, uh, I I have a warning by way of application and an admonition. First of all, a warning. Beware of any teaching that would take you back to the Old Covenant. To the ceremonies, to the feasts, to the festivals, to the holy days, to the priesthood, to the temple, to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Whether it be what are called Messianic Jews, Hebrew roots, whether it be Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican or any other church whose liturgy is filled with sights and smells of the Old Testament rather than the truth we find for us this day in the New Testament. You see, those things were good for those in the Old Testament. Those things were good for those as the people of God at that time. God gave them those Particular ceremonies, those feasts, those festivals, the the temple, the priesthood, the, the sacrificial system. Those were all given to them for their good, but were given to them as shadows to point them to Jesus Christ who was to come. And when he came they were abolished. They were no longer necessary. <clears throat> God gave an honorable burial to the Old Covenant by way of giving Jews during the apostolic period time to transition from the ceremonies of the Old Covenant appointed by the Lord in the Old Testament to the New Covenant. God didn't simply say one day... uh, you know, sacrifice to me, and the next day say, no, stop now. No more sacrifices. Uh, That he said legally, that they're no longer necessary. They no longer bind our conscience, but he gave the Jews who were professing faith in Jesus Christ time during that apostolic period of time to transition from that age which they had grown up with to become more enlightened and to understand those things of the Old Testament no longer have a religious significance for us. Jesus abolished. They were abolished in the death of Jesus Christ. They were shadows. When the substances come, the shadows passed away. That is taught In the various epistles, like Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and the epistle to the Hebrews, all teach that such shadows pointed to Christ, who is the substance. And they no longer have any religious warrant in our serving God in the new covenant. Paul, interestingly, in Galatians 4, calls that period of time In the Old Covenant, the ceremonies, the priesthood, the temple, all of that, he calls that the period of time of childhood, infancy and childhood for God's people. Uh, That was a period in which they were being tutored and trained uh, by all those uh, ceremonies looking forward to Christ. But once again, when Jesus has come, Paul says that they've come of age. they become mature. The new covenant is the covenant of maturity by way of redemptive history. And we have put away now those childish ceremonies that so many today are flocking to. Sadly, going back. It would be like, and it may seem silly, but I think when you, th- when you think about it, perhaps you see it's true. It would be like an adult returning to riding his tricycle to work when he has a car to drive. He's going back to his childhood, to his, to his young years, and basically wanting to, to relive his childhood by riding his tricycle to work. We'd say, that's ridiculous. And yet, dear ones, I submit to you, that's what's happening when God's people, those who profess to be Christians, are returning to the Old Covenant, the age of infancy and of being children, rather than living in the age of maturity under the New Covenant. It's moving backward. It's not moving forward. It's moving backward. So I, I issue that warning because... So many churches are caught up you know we may emphasize innovations in worship you know things that are that are new that people uh, churches are developing to try to attract people and to bring the people in their their you know uh, gimmicks of various sorts to try to attract people but dear ones there's also this matter not only of innovations but going back Not something new that we're not to bring into worship, but also going back and bringing things that were supposed to have been abolished long ago, bringing them into worship in the new covenant. And that's what we see in churches that have a priesthood and have an altar and claim that Christ in the Eucharist is resacrificed upon the altar, and that have incense and holy water, and have various uh, priestly garments uh, like the Old Testament, similar to the Old Testament priests. I find nothing in the New Testament that speaks any of any of those things. I find nothing about ministers wearing miters in the New Testament, or wearing priestly robes. Find nothing about returning to those ceremonies or re-sacrificing Jesus Christ when he says, through the Apostle Paul, there's one sacrifice that has been offered for all time. Beware. But an admonition as we close. Let us pursue, dear ones, our sanctification in looking to Jesus Christ to grow us in Christ, to conform us to the image of Christ by His Spirit. But let us do so always with an eye to our justification on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness. I dare say that many of us become so weary and see sanctification as so futile and hopeless in our lives because we are only focused upon our sanctification and perhaps our failure be sanctified to the degree that we should be or want to be and that's what will happen if we do not have one eye upon our sanctification but the other eye upon our justification that we are righteous before God Jesus is our righteousness at all times If I didn't know that and if I didn't flee to that daily, I would give up all hope of trying to strive for holiness because I fail every single day in one way or another. Our appeal to God when we fall seven times and he lifts us up We only get up again. Why? Because of Jesus, our righteousness. Because he is our advocate at the right hand of of the Father. He is pleading on our behalf throughout his ministry every day. His righteousness on our behalf. Father, that is one to whom righteousness, my righteousness has been credited and accounted. And because Jesus is our righteousness, because God has justified us, he will sanctify us. Sanctification will always follow justification. It may not come in one direct line. It may involve Uh, ups and downs may involve uh, various turns and twists but there will always be sanctification and growth in Jesus Christ to those who are justified by God through Christ always will be without exception that's why Apostle John says in 1 John 2.1, My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is our righteousness. He is the one who advocates for us, who intercedes for us, his righteousness is our righteousness and it can't ever change and that's the only reason I persevere that's the only reason you persevere in Christ is because Jesus is your righteousness our sanctification changes with failures and then growth but our justification never changes it never changes for that justification is based upon the righteousness of christ which never changes an everlasting righteousness that is ours through faith in jesus christ you're with me in prayer it is our comfort our encouragement our perseverance in thee that Jesus Christ is our righteousness Lord we praise thee and thank thee for Lord it is only as we trust in Jesus as our righteousness that we are going to grow into conformity unto him for we have no strength in ourselves. We pray, Father, that thou would continue thy work in, in us to sanctify us, but always looking to Jesus, who is our righteousness. Father, we, we ask, may these truths that we have considered from Daniel nine twenty four. These events, these purposes that thou hast brought about and accomplished in these 70 weeks that have been realized and were realized in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish redemption. May, Lord, we revel and may we joyfully receive these these truths may we be thankful to thee for all that thou hast accomplished for us in Jesus name amen, amen.